Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to All Stats On, we are a podcast in which Leeds fans cast their combined eye over goings on at Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm John McKenzie, the Simon Sharma of the podcast, flouncing around old buildings in a long coat, and I'm joined by the Dan Snow of the podcast, Jacob Stambridge, young and hopeful of the potential of history to improve the human race. <laughs> and finally, the venerable bead of the podcast, here to present us all with his own doomsday book, it's Darren Driver. Darren, how are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, I'm 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 good. I mean that that's quite the intro that the doomsday, but I mean yeah, I'm I'm all right. I'm feeling a bit more optimistic than predicting doomsday to be honest. That's normally more your job around here, John, not mine. <laughs> Maybe I should have reordered the uh, the intro. <laughs> so obviously we are looking back over the history of the last season. So that's where the histor- historical and historians um come into the intro. I was writing up the intro just before we came on air and um i was i was looking for historians like tv historians because i was like i can't really think of any and they're just all awful aren't they i was looking through the list and i was like yeah mm, yeah mm. david starkey nah not for me <laughs> uh, so yeah sorry I've, I've lumped you in with the best of a bad bunch so sorry about that but jacob stanbridge great to have you back after a after a, a debut how are you uh, very well, thanks, John. Uh, it's funny, I actually happened to hear Dan Snow's voice today. Oh, wow. uh, I accidentally launched an episode of his podcast when I meant to click on something else, and his voice is almost as posh and as incomprehensible as mine. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm all right. And how are you, John? Yeah, well, it's lovely of you to ask. Uh, no one ever does on this podcast, but here we are. I'm doing very well, thank you. And I'm very much looking forward to, to getting into this uh, this episode. So this is the first part of a two-part season review from the last season. Um, you may have come across our written piece, which looks over the whole season. Season review, that's up on our Medium. Um, you can find it pinned to our Twitter page at the moment, and that's a big chunk of text, uh, a veritable dissertation of, of text, and uh, various of the guys who do the, the podcast with me, um, you two guys have both been involved in it. We've all done a section each, and uh, yeah, it seems to have gone down fairly well. Uh, we're going to do an audio version of that really here, uh, maybe break things down a little bit more in terms of the games, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to getting into it. <laughs> 
Right. Well, I've got written on the news section of this podcast, the left-back enigma, because we're very much at a stage when no one has any idea which left-back is, is going to be approached by Leeds <laughs> and be the eventual replacement for Gianni Alioski. The news that's been coming out in various um, media sites has been that Victor Orta met someone, uh, a youngster from somewhere that no one knows and um, they were very keen on this youngster after the meeting and he's moved to the top of the list for left backs but we have absolutely no idea who it is so at the moment I think a lot of the media outlets are scrabbling around trying to find um, potential players that that could be uh, I think the impression that's been given is it's someone that hasn't really been mentioned before so um, it's going to be an interesting player whoever it is um, I don't know if either of you two have anything to add to that just that that's the ten, tends to be the way it happens, doesn't it, with with us? That, that, that whenever we go into a transfer window, there'll be kind of loads of rumblings about, oh, it might be this player, it might be that player, it might be the other player, but it tends to be somebody that's not really been spoken about that ends up being, being the one that we end up signing. So I, I tend, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on record before as saying that I like the transfer windows are my very, very least favourite part of the fo- football calendar um, and I'll just be really glad when we get to the start of the season with the squad that we've got and we can just get on with with actually playing the season so I, I try not to pay too much attention to to the to the rumours and, and and all that kind of nonsense because you know the vast 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 majority of it is just bullshit and clickbait and you know agents trying to cause trouble. I'm just trying to remember in your author's list episode on left backs you had Sosa and Perot and Vandal and I know some of those have been discounted through being mentioned in the media, but I can't remember who the fourth left back was. It was Sessignon, I think, Ryan Sessignon. Ah, uh, okay. That, that I expect that probably wouldn't happen either. Yeah, well, he's been in the media quite a bit because of Antonio Conte um, potentially arriving at Spurs and being interested in anyone who can play as a functional left back. So, uh, sorry, left wing back. So, yeah, it will be it'll be fascinating to see what happens with him. Um, yeah, I think it's it's going to be really interesting in terms of I've I've been doing some research today um, for the Yorkshire Evening Post, just having a look into uh, potential left backs who fit the criteria that we talked about, basically. Um, players who would be potential for leads but haven't really been mentioned by the media and yeah there's not it's there's this you sort of die the death of a thousand qualifications when you go down that route because there's so many people it could be um and you have absolutely no idea what direction it would be that the club would take in terms of even just things as basic as like age curves and um and uh, i guess like what are they going to focus on are they focusing on someone who's going to be a, a good transitional left back or is it going to be someone who's going to be maybe a little bit better under possession so we can try and take control of games more as we've been talking about a lot on this channel through the season or yeah it's, it, you're going to get someone who's older because they're going to come in and probably be a first uh, you know first team player do you get someone who's had a lot of minutes who's maybe a bit younger there's, there's so many different avenues that you can go down so it's, it's almost impossible to to really um, anticipate who it's going to be I, I guess there are a couple of questions linking from that in terms of the style thing I mean I, I think I could predict what what your preference would be in terms of the sort of left back that that we would want and I think we would all broadly agree on that but but what what do you think it is that, that we're actually looking for do you think we're looking to go to stay in that more transitional style or do you think we're looking to try and um you know a kind of up the ante in terms of the control as we did in Bielsa's second season compared to his first my sense is more that we will probably stick with the transitional um and I think that means that a lot of my anticipations through the season, last season, are probably going to be a little bit far of the mark. Um, so, 
Yeah, I, look, we we moved very quickly from uh, an attempt to control the ball and we became very transitional pretty quickly. And I think from here on in, uh, what we need really is is a left-back who is going to be able to help us get forward. Um, someone like Luke, Luke Ayling obviously is great on the right because that's what he does, right? He is a very transitional player. And so uh, I think maybe they'll look for someone similar to him who's got decent short passing uh, good carrying the ball um, he's got a good cross on him I think that's something that uh, we probably need on that side especially because I don't think that's necessarily ailing strength um, so yeah I think we'll probably be looking for maybe a slightly more attacking player um, than we've we've had with Alioski but I was reading some quotes from from Bielsa where he's talking about Alioski and a lot of his defensive issues he was saying come from issues within the system and the system really doesn't support him and so Bielsa was saying any of the defensive issues that you see with Alioski I don't think are necessarily his fault and I feel they're my responsibility rather than his uh, which I think mm. is an, <laughs> which is an interesting take for sure but I, I think in, in terms of the defensive side of things I can maybe get that but I do think that in terms of the possessional side of things that has been his weakness even if you are playing transitional football the games where Alioski's been poor have been the games where he's been put under pressure and uh, as we've talked about a lot on this podcast so I think we will be looking for someone who has the ability to get out of those situations. So we're going to look for someone press resistant, but who will be um, press resistant not to maintain possession, but just to transition the ball. So um, that can be a, a bit of an overlap between between a lot of players. I actually think that someone like Romain Perrault is probably a more possessional um, fullback in that sense, but he, he obviously has that ability to, to transition the ball as well. And uh, and so I think, again, like so much of the time, the author's list stuff that I look back on, I'm like, we recorded that two months ago and my opinion on the position has entirely changed. So um, yeah, I would have to go back and watch someone like Perot, but it does seem as though that he's not in the offing anymore. And I, I'm not entirely sure why that is, but we are 15 minutes into this episode and we have not yet talked about uh, this. So season, we're not going to so. talk about Rafinha. <laughs> <laughs> I think Hobbsy might implode. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'll leave that for, for the Josh Hobbs uh, uh, episode. And the next time I talk to him, because he is getting wound up by people on the internet, um, uh, offering silly uh, swaps for for Rafinha, um, funny as it is. But let's let's move on to start talking about last season. Then, so I think the the most important thing for us to do in this episode, in the first part anyway, is to talk about how you divide the season up. And I think this is an interesting question because in our um, season review, the 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 written review that we've talked about already in this episode, we use the Manchester United game really as the the sort of turning point in the fulcrum of which um, before that. Leeds were trying to do something and after that they were trying to do something else um, but I think that we'll probably all agree that when you actually look at the individual games it's a little bit more tricky trying to pinpoint really the moment at which you know Leeds were in an in a bit of a quandary in terms of the tactics and the the moment at which they decided it would be um, good good for them to get out of it um, so it, what if you look at before the Manchester United game there are a couple of results. Obviously, there's the Chelsea and West Ham results, which I think were a bit of a nadir in the first half of the, the season. Um, but before that, we had Everton, which was probably the best result in many respects or the best performance in the first half of the season. Um, we also had the, the Arsenal nil-nil, which was probably like a game that we should have won uh, on we paper. very good in that game. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then before that, you then have another small nadir, which is, you know, Leicester tonking us at uh, home uh, and then that sort of freak result against Palace. So it's not as if everything got bad all of a sudden and then suddenly we turned things around and then everything got good. Um, equally, if you look after the Manchester United game, 
we have the Burnley result, we win 1-0, but we, that we were absolute toilet in in, in a lot of respects. Uh, we had the West Brom game, which we won 5-0, but we put up 0.9 XG. Um, so that, that sort of really <laughs> flattered us. We then have Spurs losing 3-0 um, when we got a, a little bit sort of um, Jose Mourinho'd by them. We then lost to Crawley Town in the in the third round of the FA Cup, and then we lost to Brighton 1-0. And then we have the second Newcastle um, uh, performance where, it, again, it was a much tighter affair and, you know, it could have easily gone gone the other way as well. So I think what we'll do in this in this podcast in particular is we'll aim at, at the first half of the season. So the Newcastle second fixture was actually the 19th league fixture, so the bang on the halfway. Um, so we'll focus on that. But uh, I'm interested in in your takes on, on the, that turning point that we talked about. Obviously, the Manchester United 6-2 is quite an easy narrative device for, for you to sort of swing a, uh, or hang a narrative off. Um, but... Um, Darren, I'll start with you. What's your sense of of how the first half of the season went? I think it's really difficult, isn't it? Because it feels, it felt to me, I think at the time, very much like it was kind of a bit, a bit like you weren't, or like I, I learned it for myself. Like I wasn't really quite sure what what was what was going to happen. I, I kind of felt all along that we were going to be okay in the end, um, and that there were going to be some, but but that there were likely to be some hairy hairy moments. Um, and you're right, you know that we we have we have kind of used the the Man United away game where we, where we got absolutely walloped as a kind of as a narrative device, and it's really interesting actually because when I looked at these this, this uh, list of results from now in my memory, the the Arsenal at home game where Dallas had moved into midfield in my memory had moved to after the Man United game, and obviously it's not it's some weeks before that, and I remember John uh when the when the team for the Arsenal home game was announced you kind of going oh fucking hell Dallas is in midfield and that's going to be like problematic and 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 you know broadly the the rest of the all stats team agreed with you and actually it's kind of that that kind of move into into midfield and Dallas becoming established in there which happened more in the second half of the season that that kind of defines a season rather than that man united result but but I think I think overall you look at you look at the the first half and it's kind of first half of the season and it's kind of very up and very up and down isn't it there are kind of some really significant beatings in there like there's the Leicester at home game as you said where where actually we put we played quite well I thought but but they we but but basically fell into the kind of traps that Leicester set for us on that night in in and I'm going to use this word advisedly p- perhaps in quite a naive way um in that 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 some of the way that in which we used the ball you know kind of really played into the way that they wanted to 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 play against us um and then there's the kind of like you say there's the Everton away there's the Villa away performance where where both of them were, were truly excellent but i remember when when we when we did the the quiz um around christmas time john and um i was kind of saying in that podcast that i felt that that the second half of the season would be more stable because i felt that we would have taken the learning from the first half um but but the the way I'm kind of rambling through this kind of indicates really that I don't think there's a really convenient and easy narrative way to describe the first half of the season other than that it just felt very up and down and quite unpredictable in, in places and that, that we took we took our lumps against the big teams basically. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I'll be interested to hear your take on this as well, Jacob. But for me, I think the turning point is at the moment at which um Dallas becomes basically a de facto central midfielder and as I said in the 
uh, in the season review that we we put up. Uh, this basically happens um, after Click gets injured, and Click's first injury, I think, is in the first West Brom game. Uh, and by the time we get to the second Newcastle game, that's the the game where Dallas moves into central midfield, uh, and pretty much, I think, from that point onwards. That's the moment at which we're we're talking about a slightly different tactical approach. That's interesting because in in the first part of the season, Click was playing all the games, and it was it was more about who was going to partner Click, wasn't it? And then he and so that's where Dallas ended up coming in. And then when he got that injury, then it became Dallas plus one other, which is quite an interesting change around. I definitely agree to make that sort of distinction with Dallas coming into the midfield. Um, that Brighton game that we lost just before Dallas started, um, I think that was a real sort of low point for the Rodrigo click axis in midfield. The axis of evil. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to call click evil. I don't no, even no. want to call Rodrigo evil. No, neither do I. Just misguided. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a game where there was a lot of like running straight through us centrally and at the same time it not being a trade-off for us putting up really good attacking. That was one of the games where we put a really, really low XG together. Um but so then in the Newcastle game, we, we make that change. We do that. And even in that game, in the second half, Dallas went to left back and Click came into midfield with Rodrigo. And then suddenly the centre backs were running through us again. And so I think that, that that's just a very telling moment. Um, more broadly, I think the first half of the season, we can sort of think about as well as like a an, ex, an exploratory sort of time. Um, I, I was having a bit of a think about the, the different months as we're going to come on to and like... There's time when it seemed like every week we were getting pressed out in the wide areas. There's the time like around with Chelsea Man United when it's like, ah, we're against teams with really good players and they can just beat us in one-on-one duels. And I think at just at different points, we were learning different things about the team and Bielsa was trying different things out as well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I sort of go along with Darren, really. It's it's ups, ups and downs as we sort of learn different things about what the team and the players could do in the league. One of the things that I tried to highlight in the in the season review that we wrote is that I think so much of it comes down to Click being fit. And I think we were okay at the beginning of the season, largely because Click was okay. It, it meant the press was okay. It meant that actually going forward, we were creating fair amount of chances um and actually kind of wish that we I, I i looked at the defensive side of things in terms of um big chances conceded and we saw that once dallas goes into midfield we conceded a lot fewer of those big chances and what i call decent chances um but i would love to have done that the other way around and just seen how much of an impact clicks injury actually had on us both as a as a we saw what the impact was in the pressing because I showed that in the in the season review but I think in, even in terms of the creativity I think we will have seen a drop off from click after that point too absolutely because when he was played when he was in the team at the start of the season he was being incredibly creative if you remember the game away at Palace he was kind of the he was creating loads of chances there he was kind of really stringing everything together and and you know kind of the, the, the feeling at, the, at that time was, I remember us talking about it on the podcast, that, that really he was trying to stake his claim to, to take that role away from Ro- away from Rodrigo on a kind of permanent basis and, and was and, and was performing in a way which which looked like he might be able to do that. When I wrote that piece about Tyler Roberts in midfield uh, later in the season, I, I just looked at the two of uh, Click and, and Rodrigo's numbers in, in an attacking sense and Click, Click's uh, like expected assist and things were matching Rodrigo's. When when they were playing as the person you assumed was the most advanced of the midfielders, so like when he was partnering Dallas and things, and um, 
yeah, I, I think it was sort of very telling that even when looking at those numbers, they were they were petering off at, at that kind of time, and so they pulled his averages down. Like at the start of the season, he was right at the top of the whole division for those kind of things. Yeah, and I think a lot of that just that drop off just came from him being injured. Injured, and I think the thing, the really interesting interesting thing for me about the press is that I think even when the press got bad early on, I don't think necessarily that was. I mean, obviously that was to do with Click's injury, but I kind of think a lot of that was to do as I've, as we've talked about a lot the fact that Rodrigo wasn't up to speed with the pressing, whereas the real impact that it has on click is that click suddenly becomes unable to do the sort of degenerative productive work that that he was doing and so for me that first injury that he gets around um yeah obviously around the the West Brom game but I think he probably got to a point where he'd played a huge amount of games in a row and we were slowly just seeing his him him reaching that point I mean we we like to say that Bielsa burnout doesn't happen but I think it, it genuinely did happen with with Click because we weren't able to rotate him enough um, and so what we saw was you know after about the first 10 games of the season just a, a slow decline until he was just going to get injury after injury and it took a, a huge amount of resting actually in the second half of the season um, of him only playing half a, half a game or missing a game here or there for him to actually pick things back up so I think for me the Dallas move into midfield is as much about click getting injured as it, as it is about anything else and so I suppose that that raises the question whether or not if we get click to a point where he's fighting fit again at the beginning of next season whether or not we'll see click going back into midfield and we'll see Dallas dropping out and going going elsewhere um I don't know if either of you two have thoughts on that I suppose I kind of have have a, num- a number of thoughts about it really and, and I guess that it links to it links to me well the, the kind of key question there is in which of the midfield roles would would we ideally want click to be playing in that scenario because that really makes a difference to what midfield signings we may or may not make over the over the over the summer because you know if if click is going to play as the more advanced state um rather than the kind of you know and and I know that we 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 talked about you know these these terms have qualifiers but we we broadly talk about in terms of more advanced state and deeper eight don't we so if click's going to play as the more advanced state then do we still try and bring in the deeper eight or do we do we try and get click to play as the deeper eight and, and bring in a more attacking player because the the reason I asked that question is because it became clear, you know, in parts of the season that playing playing click alongside a more attacking player, i.e. Rodrigo, wasn't really working because they were both had that temptation to move beyond the ball and to and to kind of empty the midfield. So I think there are a lot of questions about the structure of the midfield and how we use click next season before we can really answer that question. To go along with that as well, I think there's the question that we talked about earlier on about are are we going to say transitional or are we going to try and have a bit more control? And one thing about Dallas I really quite like in midfield when we're transitional is that he's he's very good at the late runs. He's scored a lot of goals from midfield in the second half of the season and, and um, you don't see that as much from Click or certainly not, we, we had, didn't in the Premier League at least. Yeah, I think that's that's very true as well. I think one of the things I always kind of find interesting about the way that we talk about eights actually is that um, we always kind of talk about a more defensive and a, and a more attacking eight. And I think that's probably wrong to a certain extent. I think when it comes to eights, Bielsa just sort of decides who his two eights are going to be and then will try and um, emphasise their strengths in that position. So... Like if you play if you play Rodrigo and Click in the, in the same team, like you said before, Jacob, they're they're both going to be creative. It's not that one's going to be slightly less creative than the other. The both will be the player that they are. The problem will be is that you're probably going to see some kind of breakdown in the press. And 
I, I guess the big thing about Dallas moving into central midfield was that you, you, we weren't really playing with two eights and a and a six or four or whatever you want to call them. We were playing with a sort of double pivot, really, and and then a, a more attacking player. Um, and so I think that the, one of the big questions again has to be next season: Do we go back to that sort of two eight system, or are we going to stick to a double pivot with a with a midfielder in front of them? Um, and yes, okay, one of those double pivot is going to be more of a box to box player who is going to push forward in attack, like you said, and and Dallas is going to arrive late in in the box. But at the same time, you're 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 very much changing the the style of play that you're that you're using, and I'm I'm kind of interested to see what will happen there, especially because you know if we do bring in another player who can play the the position as Click did, then I think you could play both of those two players together feasibly and not lose the control in the same way that we did in 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 the season last season. Right. I, I don't know if anyone has any other thoughts that they wanted to talk about in, with respect to, to any of this, but I think we should probably move on because we could probably discuss the various interpretations that you could have of, of the first half of the season. I'm quite pleased that we've gone with like the first, like bang in, 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 in half with the first half. And listening back to last seasons, actually, I think the last season was a lot more was a lot more narrative heavy. There was like there was spells where we did well and did badly, and and it was quite clear when that happened. Whereas this season, I think because we probably went into a lot of games as the underdogs. It's it's there's never really any sort of momentum behind anything. We weren't expected to win all of our games, and we weren't expected to lose all of our games. And so you get this sort of flip flopping backwards and forwards between like mini spells of form. So you lose two games in a row versus Chelsea and West Ham, and then you have a couple of games that you win against Burnley and West Brom, and it just kind of goes backwards and forwards like that. I think it also helped last season that the major narrative turning point was more or less bang halfway through the season, which was the Cardiff home home game where we threw a three goal lead so we didn't have anything quite as uh, conveniently placed this time <laughs> <laughs> it's true it's true although Dallas going into midfield on bang on the halfway is yeah that's true that, that's um, true that's true <laughs> so yeah what we're going to do in the rest of the of the episode is we are going to break everything down by months because there isn't really that sort of narrative shifts that you can focus on the narrative so hopefully that will work just as well but um, I wanted to start just with a couple of uh, a couple of areas firstly the pre-season um I had completely forgotten that we only played two games of preseason last season, uh, which seems absolutely ridiculous. I think there was maybe a couple of games that were played behind closed doors that didn't really get brought into the open. But um, the the recorded games that we had were a game against Stoke City, which we lost 3-0, and then a game against Passos de Ferreira, um, a Portuguese side, I believe, which we won 3-1, which featured a a goal by Pascal Strauch, which I have no memory of whatsoever. So, um, (laughs) yeah, that says how much... uh, I I definitely watched that game, but, you you know, clearly passed me by entirely. so yeah, I I wanted to first talk to talk to you guys about do you do either of you remember any of these games other than I remember we played Passos I watched it um but I didn't really take much from it you know Strauch Hernandez and Costa's score um that looks like a game from last season to me rather than a game from this season um but yeah Jacob do do you, do you have any memories of these games So I don't think the Stoke game was actually broadcast live we just got like 5 minutes of footage or something and um I vaguely remember Kiko Casilla dropping a ball and they scored and something possibly about Leif Davis messing something up at centre-back, but uh, that that is as far as my memory goes. I, I remember a bit more about the other game. I, I watched that one as well. Strauch, I think it was a goal from a corner. Like, um, he did that a bit for the under-23s before as well, I think, so... um. There was that, and Pablo. It, I think it was a bit of a screamer, but it was a it was a strange one because 
I think a lot of the team were away on international duty at the time. Like Barry Douglas was playing left centre. No, Barry Douglas was playing left wing back. Leif Davis was playing left centre back in a three, but overlapping Barry Douglas, it was it, <laughs> it, like very strange. But um, I, I, that's that's the extent of my memories. Just facts, really. We talked a lot about the impact of or lack of uh, the impact of a lack of a pre season uh, when we were talking about Rodrigo in terms of his pressing. And I, if I'm correct, I don't think. Rodrigo played in either of these two games, um, so um, that maybe that maybe um, chastens me a little bit for for saying that the preseason won't have too much of an impact on on Rodrigo, or at least the 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 lack of uh, of a preseason last season uh, is probably less important given that it was only these two games, neither of which he played. Um, obviously, he would have been training um, outside of that, but clearly um, it wasn't it wasn't the the best experience for him in terms of picking up the sort of quote unquote competitive game time, um, but yeah, I, I wondered if either of either of you had any thoughts on um, how that might impact us this season, whether or not we're going to have a a longer preseason, even despite the fact that the the Euros are on, um, whether or not you think that we will get a better chance for us to prepare for the next season this time around, Darren. Yeah, I think I think we 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 definitely definitely will. I think there'll be a full program in piece preseason. I think Bielsa will do that thing that he's done in every preseason, where he splits splits the squad up and has different units working separately, um, and brings them together for the kind of final final uh, pre preseason friendly. And I really hope that we we do get that because I think it gives us a chance to to, to it gives us and Bielsa a chance to have, really have a look at people who might not otherwise get any sort of competitive minutes so mm. I'm, I'm really hopeful that that you know um that, that everyone will get the chance to kind of put the full fitness work in before the summer and 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 that, that we, we we are able to kind of yeah have a proper program because I, I, although we weren't you know everybody was in the same situation nobody had a full a full pre-season program um I think I think it would it would have helped us if we'd have been able to do so just want to go back to the previous question my only memory of the stoke city friendly is of you doing some analysis on the five minute highlight uh, video john <laughs> and, and mainly talking about leaf davis which i just uh, for some reason it just really just popped into my mind when jacob was talking so um yeah poor leaf poor leaf not very good leaf well he, he, he was not not very good davis in those games was he oh that's um, it <laughs> yeah indeed but yeah I'm, I'm really hopeful that 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 with a with a proper preseason that that we might be able to have um a bit a bit more of a consistent first half of the season uh, next year if you consider the fact the season before that we had that weird scenario where half of the squad went to australia and half the squad stayed at home this could be in fact the first chance we have really really to have a full preseason since bielsa's first season yeah pretty much so hopefully um that will be beneficial to the to the club before we get onto the month by month, let's just quickly go over the signings. I don't think we need to go into this too much. Insofar as um, you know, we've we've constantly sort of analysed the the summer window last season uh, throughout the course of this season. But just to run through this in terms of the the, the signings that we made. So obviously, Rodrigo is the most expensive three uh, thirty million euros. And Diego Llorente, twenty million euros. Rafinha, eighteen point five eight million euros. Um, Helder Costa, we obviously had to translate into um, into a, a well a loan to buy option, which was seventeen point seven million euros. Um, Robin Koch, thirteen million euros. Ilan Melier, six point five million euros, and then Jack Harrison, we took on loan again, despite the fact we had a loan to buy option. But that must be some kind of record three seasons on loan with one club. It must be. Yeah, that's actually quite interesting. I wonder. 
if there is, I'll, I'll check. I'll check that out. Yeah, no doubt we will end up buying Jack Harrison this window. So that's, I guess, already what ten million is it? I think it's eleven. Eleven million is the price that's been quoted. Yeah. Somehow we're just going to end up with him on loan again, aren't we? And we're a twenty million fee next summer. And then before we know it, you're just sort of at a point where you're like, "Well, we've we've sort of had him on a four year contract, and he's now moved <laughs> yeah. on for for a free." So yeah, I suppose I suppose that is a really interesting one. But I think on the face of it, you know, obviously it's a good good window. I think you you've got to argue that Urente, Rafinha, and Koch and Melier are, are good signings. Um, Helder Costa, I think, is you know. A different one in terms of obviously he's alone to buy um, and and he's been sort of amortized across his time at Leeds as well and will I suspect probably move on this this summer uh, Rodrigo we've we've discussed about um, and you know I think in many respects you you have to sort of view that in terms of where Leeds are at and I think you have to view all of these signings really um, with, uh, with where Leeds are at I did a, an interview for Analytics FC podcast this week with a guy called Oliver Gage, who is the director of football for the Canadian Premier League, uh, which sounds like a, an interesting job, a really interesting job. Um, but he was talking a lot about um, one of the things he's learned from working as an analyst in in the industry is that you get a lot of people on Twitter who who look at what's going on at clubs and they kind of draw up their shortlists and they say, you know, these are the players that a club should sign, these are the managers that a club should sign. And he says, if you think that clubs don't have that information in front of them they don't have these shortlists then you're wrong the majority of these clubs do have this there are better and worse organized clubs but the the issue with transfer windows is sign you know you've got so many variables have to be in place for in order for any of these things to happen that um it's it especially for a a club like Leeds, i suppose where you're coming into a a league where you're not going to be in in the top half necessarily of the teams in terms of uh, the way that people are looking at you as a potential career option. Uh, and so that that does have to come into it. So I think with the Rodrigo signing, it was probably one of the, the signings where we were aware of the fact that we probably weren't going to be able to get a marquee signing necessarily um, unless we went for someone who was maybe a bit older, someone who was uh, looking to, to get a, a fair amount of game time um, at, a, at a lower level to which he had been playing. Um, so I think in that with that respect you know i i again i maybe a little bit chastening for me and i've been quite critical of the rodrigo signing um but i can un, i i have to say that i understand where that came from with respect to leeds there are obviously probably better signings out there but whether or not leeds could have got them is is an entirely different matter um and so yeah with with Rod- i think with rodrigo i think my criticisms with respect to how he's fit was going to fit into the side are fair and and just but at the same time there's nothing wrong necessarily with a with the club buying a player of his caliber and trying to make him work um however however they can yeah well i think when you when you look at the list of the players that we signed you you, you have to say that ob, you know kind of objectively they're they're all good players you can see why clubs any club that, that had been promoted would would be pleased to get to get these players i suppose the questions come come you know really about you, you see, I, I'm kind of of the view that if you that that if you don't sign Rodrigo, but you do sign a really competent midfielder, then then it becomes a really very good window. Um, whereas whereas with with the players that we signed, I think you have to say you know it's a it's a a good window, and I think that any club that signs you know seven players, if you get if you get four or five of those who work out and who you know can't contribute heavily over the course of the season, then then that's that's kind of really a, a a, a job a job well a well done even you know even though you know 
individually you might say well I prefer this player to that player or whatever um, but I, I, you know I do remember saying at the at the time when we signed Rodrigo that I thought that the fee that we paid for him given that he was 29 years old and had had an injury history was felt felt high to to me um, and that it's you know it's perhaps either um, either Radrizani kind of insisting that we make a marquee signing or or that that um, Rodrigo, somebody who Victor Orta's wanted to sign for a long time, or Bielsa's wanted to sign for a long time, and that perhaps that 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 may have overtaken the kind of the pure logic of of the signing. But I mean, that's just speculation. I think the other thing as well is the the Urente signing is very much a post Robin Koch getting an injury signing as well. So you have to read that signing in 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 those terms. I think the majority of fans are pretty pleased with Urente. I think you and I. Darren maybe a little bit more <laughs> hesitant to be positive about Urente, but mainly on stylistic grounds probably. And but I think you could you you could argue that you know signing Robin Koch um, and then him getting injured and then realizing that he's going to have to have surgery and so you've got to bring in a player who can be a starter um, maybe forced the price up and forced the age up that you might have been happy with. Um, and so I don't, again, I don't necessarily begrudge them the, the, the Urente signing in that sense. It would have been nice to have seen like an, an, another younger player coming in. But then I suppose the issue is that you then got two players of the same profile of the same age. And so it becomes a lot harder to sort of balance those two things off. So even in that sense, I think you, 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 when you look at the, the, the signings as a whole, it's a pretty good window overall. The other name that was getting banded about at centre-back was Axel Tuanzibi on loan. Um remember it got mentioned a few times and I guess that he fits sort of what you were saying there to some extent and maybe the fact that he would have been on loan would have sort of mitigated that being more of an issue in the longer term you could then assess it again at the next season but at the same time he didn't have a lot of top flight experience or, or anything so uh, yeah I, I see why they they would change the profile of player they'd want with Co- with Robin Cox injury and the other player that was mentioned was Yoshko oh, Guardiola course, yeah. as well um, and he was a, again a youngster who I think probably would have been played in the youth, youth setup anyway so they had to get someone in I suppose who was available and um, at last minute as well because this was already the first week of the season right when. Uh, Robin Koch got injured so that massively reduces your chances of of being able to pick up a player and Diego Urente was out of favour at, at Sociedad and I, I think again that's probably just a, more of a marriage of convenience than anything else right anyone got any final thoughts on signings I'm just conscious of the time that we've not even got onto the months <laughs> just that you know obviously Rafinha's been an unmitigated success I think I think Melier's been a, an incredibly successful signing and and Harrison's improved every year so I'll be, that, he, that he's played for us so I'll be more than pleased to see him actually finally become a permanent signing uh, in the summer Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Right, so let's start moving through the season itself, month by month. Pop quiz, can you name the side that start at uh, Liverpool? Yeah, okay. Uh, Melier in goal, Luke Aylin at right back, Robin Cock at right centre back, uh, Pascal Strauch, left centre back, Stuart Dallas at left full back, uh, Helder Costa, right wing. Uh, the two eights were uh, Click and. Pablo Hernandez, the uh, central defensive midfielders, Calvin Phillips, left winger was Jack Harrison, striker was Patrick Bamford, and the two substitutes we used were Tyler Roberts and Rodrigo. And Shackleton actually came Oh, in, did we but... bring Shackleton as well? Yeah. yeah. Okay. But yeah, good work. I think that that's right. Do you know what's really funny? I, for, for, I was thinking about it for ages. I didn't do any research, but I thought about it for ages before before this, the session. And the one player I couldn't remember was who played as the other eight alongside Click, which just shows how um, anonymous Pablo Hernandez was in that game. <laughs> yeah, a very different team to, I guess, the team that... Well, it's not a very different team from the team that ended the season. <laughs> but, uh, end, ended the full season, should we say. Um, but yeah... I, Maybe um, your pop quiz now, Jacob, is, is a little bit harder. Can you name the starting eleven for the, the whole City game that was the second game of the season in the Carabao Cup, which we ended up losing on, on penalties? Do you want to have a go at that? Again, I'm also very confident on 10 of the players and not on one of the eights. <laughs> um, so I'll go through. Um, so it was K- Kiko Kassir in goal. As, we as played captain. without a goalkeeper. As, oh, yeah, that, that's it. We, we played with the captain's armband in goal. Um, <laughs> Jamie Shackleton at right back. Charlie Cresswell and Leif Davis at centre-half. Barry Douglas at left-back. Ollie Casey started in defensive midfield. Um, Tyler Roberts was number eight. Jan Pavedo on the right wing. Gianni Olioski on the left wing. And Rodrigo started up front. The eight, I'm sure I remember tweeting in sympathy of this person for being the only midfielder in midfield. Um, and just because I can remember that he played in the game, I think it might have been Robbie Gotts. It was not Robbie Gotts. He came on. Oh, it was even more rare than a Robbie Gotts appearance. Even more. A player who spent most of his time in Spain last season on loan. Oh, Bogus. Oh, yeah. of course. Yeah. Mateus Bogus. Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah. But that, I'm very impressed. I don't think I would have got any of those. Casey in defensive <laughs> midfield. What on earth were we thinking? We seem to have a Is... lot of defensive midfielders in that game. We had Strauch, Phillips and McAlmont all on the bench. Yeah, as well. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that was just by way of entertaining myself. September, we obviously started off with the, the Liverpool game that we talked about and then went straight into the obligatory immediate knockout from the uh, Carabao Cup. Uh, and then we had t- two games, Fulham and Sheffield United. And I think, I mean, the Liverpool game, I think we've talked about to death, really. But I'm interested in your thoughts on the Fulham and, and Sheffield United games because uh, the, the sort of general consensus was that we kicked on and flew from, from out of the blocks last season but the the Fulham game despite the fact we went 4-1 up and then sort of shook a little bit midway well t- towards the end of the second half um is one thing but the the fact that we scored a, a fairly late goal against Sheffield United and Melier had to pull off that great save that we gift in the in the um season review meant that Sheffield United could easily have not gone that way as well so 
what what are your what are your memories of uh, September in particular, Jacob? In part, excitement because I've never seen this team play in the top flight before, um, and and I th- I think that's got to be the the overriding memory. But I think also panic, um, like that 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 Fulham game sort of really sticks out. And, and the early season, certainly maybe up to the Man City game that we're about to come on to, like. For example, like Calvin Phillips, I think was someone who took a bit of time to settle into the, the league, and um, I was very used to sort of thinking as Calvin is a very sort of steady and a steady player who was very comfortable on the ball and things, and that that was something that sort of took me by surprise. And um, it was it it was very very sort of to use a bit of the cliche that edge of your seat stuff, but when people talk about basketball games, like something like that Fulham game where we just as easily conceded a penalty as won a penalty and and things, it was. I wish I had something more substantive to say, but my my memory is just very very high octane and very well very needed to go and lie down afterwards. Really, <laughs> yeah. I think my kind of overriding memory of it, um, and and it's gonna, this is gonna sound like a, quite a strange thing to say, given that they were the second and third league games of the season, is that they felt like massive, massive, massive games that would kind of really dictate how the how the how the rest of the season was likely to go. And if we if we had have lost, you know, those two games, which which in both we could very easily have done so, then then that that puts a whole very different complexion on on the start of the season, and and kind of makes the Liverpool game look, you know, in which you know we we got a, a you know we were plucky and everything, but but really we should have lost heavily against Liverpool in my view. Um, I know that doesn't make us popular when we say things like that, but that's just how it goes, isn't it? But but that that if we had have lost those first three games, I think we might have been bang in trouble, to be honest. And to go along with that as well, like Fulham and Sheffield United are teams who ended up going down and and they were sort of talked about as our more rivals at the time. So like not only would it be maybe a thing for the team's morale, but also just for narratives that would have pulled out as well. Yeah, I mean, if Sheffield United win that game, because they had a massive slump at the beginning of the season, um, if they win that game, then it, it looks very different. And I think one of the things we pointed out actually from... Uh, a lot of the end of the season stuff that we we put out was that Leeds were very good when they went ahead first, and when they went behind first, they they often weren't very good. Um, and you know, I think the same would have been true for if if, if John Lundstrom, for example, finishes that chance and they go one 0 up. Who knows what would have happened in that in that game? And as you've said, you know, as soon as you lose that momentum or momentum goes in one way or the other, then then anything can happen. Um, again with Fulham like they took a huge amount of time to really get going in the league and it wasn't until the second half of the second half of the season that they really started pulling on and people for a while thought they might pull it out of the back um obviously that didn't happen either so yeah really interesting to look back on those games in particular let's move into October so in October we only again what's so fascinating to me about this is just how few games you're having in each month um I think we had I think in October and November or maybe yeah October and November I think there was international uh week weekends which which meant that there was fewer games anyway but we played three games in October we had the the 1-1 result against Manchester City um, which I think was a good result given that we looked like we were going to get absolutely turned over after the the first half and a a rare example of a game where we actually came back into a 
into the game after going down a goal. Um, Wolves then was the first example of I think the of what I'm talking about in terms of as soon as Leeds went down, they uh, a goal they suddenly looked a lot less dangerous in terms of uh, creating attacking chances. So again, that's a game against Wolves where I think we looked pretty decent up until the, the goal, and then we just looked like we weren't going to score in a, in a thousand years. And then we had the the game against Villa where Villa just tried to go toe to toe with us in a transitional sense, and they just got absolutely blown away by it. Um, Again, it's very, very hard to, to to try and tie any of these narrative pieces together because, like, what do you take away from a a draw against one of the best teams in the world, um, and then you know a loss to a team who were pretty stodgy and we probably looked better than for most of the game, and then yeah, this sort of game where Villa, who were I think second in the league at this point, um, who you know we we absolutely turned them over, and there was talk about Villa maybe maybe going to Europe in in the end, and obviously that didn't happen once they got the the Jack Grealish injury. So Darren, I'll start with you on this. Like, what, what's your takeaway from from these 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 games in particular? Yeah, I suppose you know over the course of the season, if you are able to kind of get a winner, draw, and a defeat from from every three games, then then you, you you're going to be in you're going to be in reasonable shape, aren't you? And, and you know, the City game, I, I, I just remember just how nervous I was for the first 20 minutes of it because they absolutely pummeled us for that first 20 minutes. And I thought, you know, I was thinking this is this could be absolutely any score um, that, to, to them by the end. But, you know, by the end, we, I, th- I thought we were... We were the better team over the ninety minutes, that you know, and certainly for the for the middle hour, I thought we were much the better team. And and the, the, the actually, my overriding memory of that game, I've got a, a very distinct visual memory of it, and it's that amazing save that Edison made um, with his, with his top hand that was going into the top right hand corner from I think it's from a header, I think it's from a Rodrigo header, and and for some reason in my memory that's that's that happens with a full Ellen Road going oh. <laughs> Which obviously never happened, so just shows what what tricks the memory can play. And you know, wolves wolves were the were, were kind of it was quite kind of quite championshipy in a way, wasn't it? In that they're a team who are who are always going to be quite defensively stodgy. They're, they're but they're quite quite good at kind of um at kind of killing you know kind of teams' momentum in in very specific areas of the pitch. And th- a narrative started to form there around Leeds kind of mani- not not really being able to kind of build up successfully in wide areas when teams decide to press in d- in various areas of the pitch there. And that came out. And then the Villa game where again, although we won three 0 and we played very well for the first half, it was actually really tight. And 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 again could have gone either way. And Melier made a couple of really great saves in that game, which which could have been really defining. But by the end of October, you've got to you know kind of look at it and say that that the team's trucking along really quite well. That we had you know four wins and a couple of defeats by that stage, and you've just got to be quite happy with that. I think or three four wins, yeah, no three wins. Just looking at the results now, it sort of leaps out to me that. Um, if I may, like the Wolves game is one maybe that where we control possession more, and the other games were ones where uh, at best for us it, it was more transitional. And which game do which game do we lose? The one that we're sort of trying to control more. And um, I think that this sort of looking at that now, it sort of shows the season where we tended to have a bit more success being more transitional this season, and just just um, by the simple fact that relative to the standard of the rest of the league, our players aren't at the very top echelons of the league by and large. You know the Wolves game Jacob. Do you think we do you think we were trying to control possession or do you think Wolves were happy to let us have the ball? I think it's probably more the latter but I I guess that to some extent they become the same thing when, Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. When when you when you sort of 
have the ball and you're breaking someone down um, or trying to break someone down compared to Villa where there was just a lot more end-to-end. I, I just think about Jamie Shackleton just running the entire length of the pitch in about three seconds and that was, seemed to be my overriding memory of that game. And and even Man City, particularly when Rodrigo comes on for that second half and um, he's just, there's a lot of space because it is a quite a traditional game and he's re- that was one of his best performances for Leeds. The City game was interesting, I think, because it was, it was one of those games where it felt as though Pep maybe overthought things a little bit and they uh, we talk about us looking pretty good in the second half of that game but I do think it was only like the first half of the second half where we looked good and once it got to a point where the transitional element was way too obvious that the Leeds were going to come out better in that um and that kind of battle Pep switched things around I think he brought Fernandinho on perhaps or yeah yeah he Rod- did. Rod- one, did, one of the yeah. two he brought on and they 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 sat a little bit deeper and and were happy to just sort of try and catch us out a, a little bit more through possessional play so um again I, that 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 was the override thing that, that struck me from from that game and I, th- I think that's maybe an interesting point as well in terms of whether or not Bielsa was like actually we're quite good if we're in transitional games um, we're able to to do this quite well um, and so yeah I think the story the, the, the story of, for the first half of the first half of the season like you say Jacob is it's a very experimental exploratory um, period and I think we see that in the in those games and I think after that Villa game then and going into November suddenly we see a few games where teams don't really want to play um, transitional football against us. Um, uh, and yeah, so so we, in November, then we go into the, the Leicester result where we give up a, an early goal. Um, um, and ag- again, as we've said before, as soon as we give up that, that goal, it becomes a lot more difficult for us. And then teams can just pick us off on counter-attacks. Same is true in, against Palace as well. Although with Palace, I think there was maybe a little bit more um, fortune on their side of things. There was, you know, there was a header which sort of, doubled off two players into the top corner there was an own goal there was a free kick um it was it was that sort of thing i think palace put up less than 1 xg and um they they ended up going four which to be fair we've done at times this season as well so it's hard to begrudge them that but uh, and then we have the the arsenal game where as we've said we looked okay and then the everton game where they tried to sort of sit in a in a fairly stodgy mid block and it really just didn't work out whatsoever i mean they did play alex awobi and um I think it was Tom Davis as wing back. Yeah, Tom Davis as wing back. That's which right, is yeah. you know yeah. pretty much a dream combination for <laughs> for us in that respect. Because as we've said, we we already developed this narrative that Leeds aren't great if you press them out in wide spaces, which Leicester and Palace both did, incidentally. Um, and Arsenal didn't, uh, and then Everton were just sort of happy to let Calvin ping the ball around a little bit as well. So um, again, let's start with you, Jacob. In, in this sense, in terms of the explorations, we you, know, you were talking about we we are learning things about how Leeds are going to look good in transitional play, how they're going to look uh, a, a lot more questionable if teams allow them to sort of move into wide areas, and they sort of spring pressing traps on them in those wide areas as well. Um, but also, Leeds can can play quite well against uh, teams like Everton if they do sit in those in a fairly pass massive mid-block and, and sort of let Leeds dictate the play as well. If I can just lead back to Villa just for a second, like it was the very end of that Villa game when we had a counter-attack in like the 95th minute or something and ended up with like seven players in the Villa box and suddenly everyone's talking and not just Leeds fans, like football is talking about, oh, Leeds running till the end, all these players mob- mobbing forwards and whether that in- really ended up informing any of these teams thinking or not is pretty like, moot but like suddenly there were a load of these teams as you say who weren't willing to give us that space um Leicester especially like um so good at pressing us out wide and so good at 
killing us when we made a lot of errors. Like I, I watched that game back today, and there's quite a few times where Mateus Click hits a, a, like a, a square ball and it goes wrong. Jack Harrison did that a fair bit in in that period as well. The fourth Crystal Palace goal came from him losing possession twice in the same move, things like that. And um, this is also the kind of time when Alioski play started to play at left back more. And uh, as we've already discussed, he's a, he's a player who um, is not so good at keeping the ball when we're building up. And it's it's just that sort of combination of denying us that space higher up and then being really good at killing us on the counter when we turn the ball over, which we do a lot. Um, it, it was sort of quite interesting as well to think, how did Leeds uh, approach the 3-4-3 shape um, in, term, in terms of how we set up? And Everton was that first game where Jack Harrison started off as that second striker and Alioski played ahead of Dallas. But in the Leicester game, there's something a bit like that as well. Paveda comes on in the second half, Costa goes out to the left wing and Harrison pushes up onto onto the strikers in that game as well. And so Bielsa's is clearly thinking about it but, it, but it wasn't really working out in that game because I think they were sort of marking the three strikers between the two of them, Harrison and Bamford, rather than what I think we saw a bit later on when we played against back threes where the second striker would just take one of the centre-backs and Bamford would do his normal job. Yeah, that's interesting. And then just compare that to Everton where they, same same structure in theory, but just like you say, a completely different amount of space given and it, it's so different. I think the, the interesting thing about that with the 3 the four 3s that we played against um, obviously, it depended very much on on w- what sort of front three the opposition played. So, um, in the second Leicester game, to jump forward to next next episode, but um, we we saw that same sort of movement. So Dallas moving in um, and dropping into the left back position, and Alioski pushing forward, and Harrison playing as the second striker. And because I think it was Madison who was being played as the outside right. Uh, forward um, that worked out quite well because he was trying to get in central and so you could just have Dallas following him ac- across um, but that did, obviously didn't happen in, in the first game and, and the Everton game as well the same was true with Hamas Rodriguez um, I think Dallas tracked Hamas Rodriguez in that game um, and so again it's a similar similar sort of thing where you're thinking actually Alioski is probably going to be better off being pushed further down. I don't know if Alioski even played in that game, but I think it was the same sort of thing where um, you, you what you're seeing then is everyone sort of rotating around um, and, and you're seeing Dallas coming in behind them um, as well. And that obviously worked out okay too. Um, but yeah, the, the, I, I really like the point that you've mentioned actually about how many of our chances in the first half of the season or big chances we conceded were turnovers of possession. And that is definitely something that was eradicated a lot more in the second half of the season. It was it was almost as though by playing transitional football, we actually became better defensively because we didn't put ourselves at risk of turning over the ball in 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 those spaces. Apart from against teams who pressed us high, so uh, you like the, the the games that where you just sort of have chill feelings about the things that Alioski did. I think particularly actually Fulham in the second game where they pressed us really well and he was just passing the ball back at like horrible heights to, to Melier and things like that. But, but also I, I think there was the, the second Arsenal game, obviously in that sense too. Um, those were games where actually when we tried to build out from the back, even though we were still being transitional, there was a realisation that if we were pressed high, 
we could be turned over and then there would be a, a huge amount of space to exploit in, in, in an attack. And I think that sort of happens a lot in the first half of the season and happens much, much less in the second half of the season. So again, we, we talk a lot about how Leeds improved through the course of the season, but I wonder how much of that came from the fact that teams were less and less likely to be able to press high in the second half of the season as well. I, I do think that we did improve tactically as well, but I think that we probably benefited from the fact that by the end of the season, everyone was just exhausted too. Yeah, and I think the first pass was coming quicker in the second half of the season than it was in the first half. Because if you if you think back to the the, pal- the fourth Palace goal that we conceded because um, because Jack Harrison, as you say, gave the ball away twice. We were trying to transition the ball quickly, but we were trying to do it in a very different way from the way that we would come on to do. He was trying to kind of run with the ball into central areas and then find a pass which wasn't really on. Whereas in the second half of the se- season, we were going much more. I think we went direct from Melier much more often. I think the centre backs and the full backs both played much longer more kind of balls into the channels than, than we than we were doing in the first part of the season when I think we were playing a kind of purer purer version of, of Bielsa's idealised version of football I think but getting caught out because perhaps the players aren't quite good enough to do it or perhaps we came up against two teams uh, in Leicester and Palace who just happened to have that kind of really smart now in terms of being able to press us really effectively in wide areas and stop us being able to build those triangles that we're so good at. And this brings us to December. So obviously December is like the first month where we get a sort of scheduled bottleneck. Um, and that's the December is the point, I think, at which panic starts setting in um, in terms of this is the point at which the, the media start ramping up this narrative that Bielsa is being naive. So it starts with the Chelsea 3-1 defeat. Um, like there's a game where we went 1-0 up and didn't manage to hang on to it. But there's a game where we were both undone by players going one for one, going very direct, just trying to turn us over as quickly as possible um, and and exploit space from from sort of defensive mistakes as well. Um, but also set pieces was the narrative at this time. And then obviously with West Ham, who scored from two set pieces, I think. Um, am I right in saying that? Yeah. 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 Obviously, there's 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 that sort of mild panic, and I think at this point, this is a, the 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 moments where we're just sort of flip flopping between being quite good and quite bad. So you have like the Arsenal and Everton game, which I think Leeds were both quite both those games Leeds were quite good in. Then we had the two games against Chelsea and West Ham, where Leeds just didn't look like they were going to score um, in a million years, um, despite despite the fact that we, we scored. was it the West Ham game where we got a penalty really early on. Yeah, had to take it twice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and apart from that, didn't look particularly dangerous at all. And so there was a, a sort of flip flopping between that, and then we'd had the Newcastle game after that. That was the next game, and we won that five two, where we scored a bit of a flurry of late goals, and it made the the scoreline look quite flattering. And then we go from that into the the United game, which we we lose, and then you. Sorry, I've, I've been I've, I've got to pull you up on that. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So. In in my defence, whenever I say United, I am. You mean United? United, yeah, yeah exactly. That's what you mean. But I should. You're right to pull me up. I should be clearer on that. Manchester United is the next game, and we obviously lose that six two. Um, but then we go into the Burnley game and the West Brom game, where uh, you know, even though we play badly, we still get those wins out. So I think part of the issue here was just for the fan base was just it was just exhausting. You were going from games where you would win comfortably to games where you would lose comfortably, and um, I think that. That's probably the point at which in this in this period that Bielsa decided that we had to do something uh, about that and not, not to mention the fact that at this point Click's decline has already begun as well. Uh, but Darren, do you want to make some sort of sense of December? 
it's interesting because when we when we came into December, I've kind of got my abiding memory of the Chelsea game is is it, a it was the first time that we just looked monumentally outclassed by the opposition mm. for ninety minutes, um, and and that was to do with a number of things. I thought I thought that um, the way that they were able to break our press almost at will throughout the entire game was was a really worrying sign because I don't think any team prior to that had really been able to, to do that in quite the same way and and it just showed up the individual quality that Chelsea had in terms of the, their ability their centre halves ability to, to carry the ball out Kante's ability to to get on the ball and drive it forward and and that just saw us really undone in a really very comprehensive way and yeah. they were also they also got at least one of their goals if not two from from set pieces as I recall so it wasn't just the West West Ham game where where that became a kind of narrative device I think that started in the Chelsea game um, the the Newcastle game I felt we were going to win from minute one I just felt we were better than them all the way through and it was just a matter of of whether you know whether we managed to to do that in a comfortable enough way. I, like the Man, the Man United game, I think we talked about ad nauseum, and and clearly there were there were real structural issues in the way that we built up and emptied the midfield, and and that they they much like Chelsea really kind of. Um, although I don't, I don't think Lampard is the most tactically intelligent coach around, and I certainly don't think Ole Gunnar, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is. That actually, what they both did is is they picked teams that were perfect for the way that we were playing at that time, yeah. in that they 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 picked their most press resistant um, backs and and their kind of quickest, most transitional, most direct, most incisive forwards, and that really saw us undone. I remember watching. I was I wasn't able to um to. to to watch the Burnley game live, but I do remember reading the Twitter thread as, as I was on my way home from work and seeing the things that you had been saying about it before <laughs> I got to watch it, and just thinking, God, this is going to be the worst thing I've ever seen, and in fact, it was the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and 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 although the um, the West Brom game, yeah, we won very comfortably, we won five nil, and we put up low xG. I actually didn't think I thought it was one of those occasions where xG doesn't tell anywhere near the full story because yeah. we we were clearly so much better. Than, than West Brom on that day and and you know we we deserved a comfortable victory if, if not a 5-0 because although the chances that we took were all low value chances individually um the way that West Brom failed to comprehensively comprehensively put us under any pressure for any of them meant that that quality players although there may, there may have been five bodies between the ball and the goal they were effectively like dummies so they're going to be quite easy to pick your way around. So I think it's just a kind of very mixed kind of narrative in, in a sense of, of the, for the first time against Chelsea and Man United been undone for quality and then just kind of picking off results against the other teams by and large, apart from West Ham, who were always going to be difficult for the same reasons that, that Palace are difficult for the same reasons that Wolves are difficult you know, for us to play against. Something that I think is sort of quite interesting about this period is... This coincides with most of the time that Luke Ayling played at centre back. Now, I have no issue with Luke Ayling at centre back, but the sort of the what the byproducts of that are, I think, are sort of worth looking into. This this is the time we conceded five set pieces in four games: Zuma, Suchek, Ogbonna, Kieran Clark against Newcastle, and then Lindelof. Luke Ayling's many things, but he's not brilliant in the air. Like, and for him to become like our second aerial presence for defending set pieces becomes a bit of an issue like Dallas ended up marking Suchek in in that game and uh, again that's not a player that you'd necessarily want Dallas's position in the hierarchy to be to be marking so so I thought that was a bit of an issue and then the other factor about Ailing going to center back was losing Ailing at right back 
and um, whilst better than Alioski, Dallas is still one of the weaker players technically in, in the team. And then suddenly having the two of them as the two fullbacks meant it was as much harder for us to get out of our own third f- through any kind of build-up. Yeah. Um, but it was really interesting in the Burnley game, I remember this particularly, Jamie Shackleton came on at some point in the second half and it, it didn't completely alleviate the pressure, but it, he made it easier for us to get out. And, and you see it again with the um, that Arsenal loss in the second half of the season. It's not it's not so much about Ailing playing centre-back as much as what you lose when Ailing isn't at right-back. Absolutely, I agree. I agree. I just wanted to pick up on something from the Burnley game, if I can. Um, that, that a kind of narrative started around that time that Melio has been more proactive in terms of coming out for corners and trying to defend um and 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 pick them off and and support the team in that in that way and and I actually think that throughout and and the the evidence shows that throughout the season he was consistently proactive and and safe in terms of coming out and taking corners but I do think that in that specific game against Burnley he did that more than than he did in other games so I think that the narrative that Melier came out more after that is is actually a false one um but but just specifically in that game i think he really worked hard to try and keep his to try and support his uh, his his teammates and try and claim as many of those corners as he possibly could i can't remember when we started because we've always had bamford be that zonal player at corners but at some point in the season we then started having a go on the front post as well and let oh did we do that all the time but um i feel like that sort of i remember that happening in the burnley game and i don't remember it happening before then I could be completely wrong, but um, we we suddenly started conceding fewer goals from corners. Although also Pascal Strout comes into the team at this point, so perhaps it's that. Yeah, and you can't you can't face players with those delivery as good as Chelsea and West Ham and uh, well, and, yeah. and even Man United have got every week in terms of their corner delivery, which is outstanding. Because I've looked at the corners and like it's not ever one consistent thing that goes wrong it's just it's just different things go wrong one time it's a flick on and then Phillips loses Lindelof at the back post another time Liam Cooper gets knocked over by Giroud and so his man goes free it's just a load of different factors really I remember for a while though we did get absolutely done by any team that could get a front post flick on of any form it would just completely break us down and we would concede from that but yeah I think set pieces is clearly something that we're going to have a look at at some point over the summer so I look forward to to that but we we are dragging on with with respect to time i could talk about this all night but uh i'm not sure our listeners will be as patient with us but well they have read a twelve thousand word dissertation on it recently john i'd give them some credit (laughs) they've opened it (laughs) that brings us obviously to january and i think still the vestiges of of maybe some problems that we had even before um the the manchester united game um so spurs a three nil loss uh, which obviously again comes from Spurs doing that that purple patch thing that they did at the beginning of the season where they were scoring their first chance every time and then just shutting teams down and catching them on the break. Um, that was followed by the, the Crawley Town debacle, which um, the less said about that, the better. Um, we've already talked a little bit about the Brighton loss. Um, you mentioned that, that, Jacob. And then obviously the Newcastle game, because the Southampton game was pushed back, meant that we played Newcastle uh, twice in the first half of the season uh, and that was obviously a, a far cry from the, the the game that we played a few weeks earlier where where we won 5-2 that was a only 2-1 and I, I think again if you look at the the underlying numbers they suggested that, that Leeds were a little bit scrapey in that one um, 
but I think that that sort of brings us to to the end of that of the first half of the season. And I think from that point onwards, we then start seeing those things turned around. As you said, in the Newcastle game, Dallas starts in central midfield and then moves out. And I think that's the point at which Bielsa decides that, that Dallas is almost going to be a de facto centre midfielder. And we go from there. But um, yeah, Jacob, do you want to talk us through January? Putting aside again, Crawley, like you were saying, but certainly Spurs and Brighton are just sort of the holdovers of... Um, what we were seeing before, it's still Click and Rodrigo in midfield. It's still um, t- teams stopping us from from put, putting together good chances. Like as soon as Tottenham scored, you sort of knew where that game was going. And, and Brighton, in so many ways, were so well set up to capitalise on on all of, all of our weaknesses. It was clear that we needed to do something different at this point. I was glad to see in Newcastle that we tried something different. I'm not sure that I was happy that it meant Click dropping out, but I didn't realise that he had the injury. The other thing about Brighton is that, you know, they their blueprint for both of the games against us was the same. Identical. Which, which was frustrating as well. <laughs> yeah, but, but that didn't happen for it. If you if you remember when we when we played other teams that we'd we'd been beaten by, they they actually changed their tactical approach by and large in the second part of the season and actually Brighton played precisely the same way and we were unable to get through them in precisely the same ways that we were in the first game. Yeah, the comparing that to like Leicester and, and Palace, how how they set up and uh, obviously Leicester did change the 3-4-3 in the second half but it, it's it's so different to what Brighton did, as you, as you say. That Brighton game was the kind of culmination of a, of a, of a, of us talking for quite a few weeks about the pitch oh. on the podcast, if you remember, because that was the final game of the, of the old pitted surface that that seemed I don't know what it was made from, but it wasn't certainly wasn't grass and earth anymore. Um, and and yeah, I think that I, I do I do genuinely believe that that had quite an impact on on probably the home games from from Leicester onwards, really from early November onwards, when when it just pissed it down for eight weeks and the pitch just seemed to be an absolute wreck for that entire time and although I'm not suggesting that we would have been able to to perform better against Burnley or turn the result around against West Ham I do think it had an impact I think there was about eight you know seven or eight home games where where we were just saying it's just been so long since we have haven't been you know talking about the the, this old pitch is a kind of issue. The new pitch was an issue too, but in different ways, which I'm sure you'll be delighted to talk about on the second part next week. But, but yeah, just just an interesting memory, really. No, for sure. And uh, we are the media outlet that cares the most about the pitch, I think. So I'm glad that we ended on a high in that sense. <laughs> but as the course going, John, is the course going? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I give the lectures now. <laughs> It's been a great pleasure chatting about the first half of the season with you guys. I've learned a lot from the chats that we've had. It would be great to have the second half of the of the season covered. That will be not next week, but probably the week after. I'm away on holiday next week, so we will have something next week. I'm leaving this in the hands of you lot, so uh, I'm intrepidly waiting for whatever it is that you guys put out. It's uh, me, Tom Woodhead and Jacob doing a three-hander version of Groundhog Day, I think. <laughs> Yeah, brilliant. But yeah, tune in in a couple of weeks' time for the second half of this. And uh, yeah, no spoilers, please. We don't know what happens yet. So For Groundhog Day. <laughs> All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to Darren. Thank you very much. Thank you to Jacob again. Good second showing. Yeah. Thanks very much. And uh, we'll see you on the flip side.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.